Today, as we rejoin our series, Walking Through Jesus' Upper Room Discourse in John, we're going to wrap up chapter 15 and just barely dip our toes into chapter 16, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 15 and reading through chapter 16, verse 4. Jesus, uh, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, month and a half or so, this is going to take a little bit different tack than what we've been seeing already. It's important that the Lord uh, should grab us in different ways at times. Uh, We'll see something of the hatred of the world, as you may have already surmised by our Old and New Testament readings today. So you can find our uh, sermon text today, page 902 in the Cart Bibles, if you picked one up on the way in. Before we go to the Lord's Word, let us go to His throne of grace in prayer. Please join me. O kind and gracious Heavenly Father, you who give wisdom to all who ask of you unbegrudgingly, O Lord, we ask for wisdom today as we read your word. We need your power and your wisdom. We need to come again and again to the words that you have given to your disciples, that you would direct us in the world, that we would not fear men, but we would seek your favor. Help us to see this and to do that in all the places that you have put us. Help us by the power of your Spirit to rejoice in our Savior who is hated on our behalf. We pray, O Lord, give us clarity of mind and heart that we would have more than wisdom, that we would be moved to rejoice and to worship Jesus Christ, the only Savior. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father... He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. That sends the reading of God's holy 
and inerrant word. May he indeed add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. It was back in 2001 that the Associated Press broke the story of a man named Dale Rooks. Dale is from Pensacola, Florida, and uh, Dale is, or at least was at the time, an elementary school crossing guard. Dale loved his job. More than that, he loved the children that he helped across the street every day, which is why he was so perturbed that no matter what he did, he couldn't seem to get cars to slow down as they zoomed through the, uh, the school zone that he worked. He did everything. He, he tried waving at them and signaling. He tried yelling at the cars, even got himself a whistle, and nothing seemed to help until Dale got himself a radar gun, except it wasn't a real radar gun. It was a hairdryer that he had covered in electrical tape. But from a distance, it looked enough like the real thing that whenever people came by and he pointed it at their cars, they instinctively put on the brakes and began waving apologetically like they didn't mean to be speeding through the zone. Dale said, it's almost comical how well it works. And you know that feeling. Motoring along at your own pace until something stops you in your tracks. A bit like John 15. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And you say, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about love in these chapters. Jesus is preparing his people to go out after he's gone, and he talks about love, his love for them and their love for one another. He's calming their fears. He's telling them that the Father will come and listen to their prayers. He's promising the Spirit to come and to be with them and to make them fruitful. But then, like a speed bump on an interstate, he starts talking about the hatred of the world. He slows us down here in this passage. Jesus wants us to know where we stand with the world if we stand with him. He cares about his people far too much to allow us to go on in that delusion of thinking that the unbelieving world is a safe place where we will always be welcomed and beloved just because we're Christians and we're nice people, aren't we? Yeah, for the most part we are, I think. But he knows that that temptation is there to, to be a little bit surprised and taken off guard when we see these things, and so he warns us. He wants us to know what to do with the hatred and even the persecution that comes to all those who live faithfully in the Lord. That's the question the text presses upon us. What are we supposed to do when the hatred of the world shows up? How are we to respond when persecution comes a little too close to home? There are a lot of ways we can answer that question. And if we could talk to some of the brothers and sisters around the world that we pray for every week, they could teach us a lot about enduring persecution that we will likely never have to know. But I want to look at that question. What are we supposed to do with the hatred and the persecution of the world? I want to look at that question with a few negative answers, a few things that Christians ought never to do in the midst of hatred and persecution. And here's the first answer to that, the first negative response. What should we do in the midst of hatred and persecution? Well, first of all, don't be surprised. 
don't be surprised. I heard a radio interview this week of a, a prospective student at the University of California, Irvine. But he was no longer uh, a prospective student because uh, his provisional status at that university had been rescinded. He and, and apparently a few other hundred students had received letters telling them that they thought they were going to go to UCI and no longer could go to UCI. In the case of this young man, it turns out that he was given a provisional status to go in this coming fall because of his GPA and his course schedule at the beginning of his senior year. And then throughout the year, he decided to drop one of his AP classes, which changed his transcript and left a discrepancy at the end of the year. And so he got this letter telling him he could no longer come. There was a, a discrepancy there that he was not aware of. And he was in the process of appealing this decision at UCI, and the reporter asked him, well, what's the basis of your appeal? What did you tell them why they should let you into the college? And he said, well, you know, I and, and all these other seniors, this is the first time we're doing this. Nobody told us that, that this was how it worked. Nobody warned me that if I changed my course schedule, that would change my transcript. And, and you know, I, I'm just simply unprepared for the reality of my own actions. That was the subtext of what he was saying. Now, don't come down too hard on that young man, because we all love that excuse when we can get it, don't we? I didn't know it was going to be like that. I didn't realize that this was going to happen if I did that other thing. I, I didn't realize this is what I was in for. But when it comes to our faith and the hatred of the world, we cannot claim to be unaware. Verse 18 takes that excuse right out of our Christian vocabulary. It's really a, a rhetorical statement, this verse 18, so that when Jesus says, if the world hates you, he really means something like, when the world hates you. When it comes to pass that all these things I'm telling you now actually materialize and you wake up to the fact that you are despised by the world because you belong to me. When these things happen, I need you to know that the world hated me first. He lays it out right there at the beginning. And, and if we were to go through, we would find that same message scattered all throughout Scripture. How did Jesus explain what discipleship was? Well, he talked about denying ourselves and dying daily and bearing our cross. He told us we can't be his followers unless we're willing to give up our father and mother, our brother and sister, our children, yea, even our own lives if it should come to that. He told us, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of the name of Christ. Paul did the same. He told Timothy that all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then you can flip through the pages of the book of Acts and you can see that pattern playing out in almost every chapter. That is the reality of the Christian church. But it all amounts to the summary statement that John gives us later. You see, I think this made a big impression on John. Because later, when he wrote to the church in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, this is what he said, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised. It might be that the comfortable West is just waking up to this reality. When we think of persecution, we think of the United Arab Emirates. And well, we should. And it is good and right and true that we ought to pray for brothers and sisters around the world who face a persecution that we do not know. 
And yes, the kind of persecution that you face in New England is not nearly the same thing that a believer would face in the underground church in North Korea. Our persecution is nowhere near as systematic, nowhere near as violent, nowhere near as costly, yet there is persecution. It might mean that you're ostracized might mean that you're mocked in society. If you've got the right kind of job, you could get into some hot water with your boss, or you might lose a promotion or something like that. But even when those things happen, we can feel as though we've been caught unaware, but Jesus is telling us there's no reason to be shocked when the hatred of the world shows up on account of our faith. Don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. It's simply the natural extension of the world's hatred for Jesus, isn't it? That's what it tells us, that the world's hatred for us is a hatred by association. Why does the world hate Christians? It's because we belong to him. He says we are not of this world, but rather Christ has called us out of the world. And if they persecute us, it's on account of the name of Jesus. Now, I doubt many non-believers would make that connection. If you were to go out into the streets of Concord today and you were to grab a non-believer and say, what do you dislike about Christians? They might give you a whole earful, but they probably wouldn't say, well, I really just don't like Jesus. In 2007, David Kinneman, uh, he is the president of the Barna Research Group, and he published a book called Unchristian. And the point was to do exactly that, to ask non-church-going people, what do you think about Christians? What do you think about churchgoers in the United States? And and for what it's worth, for, for what the research could re- resolve and show us, he came away with six characteristics that non-believers say leave a bad taste in their mouth when they encounter Christians. Ready? According to the book, they said Christians are judgmental, hypocritical, anti-homosexual, overly political, overly concerned with winning converts, and too sheltered from the rest of our culture we're honest, some of those things are probably true. If we're honest, we probably have some other things that we would add to that list of the things that bother us about the American church. And we've probably all done things at some time or another to give a bad name to uh, the Christian faith. But Jesus says there is a deeper reason that the world does not love Christians. The world hates Christians because the world hates Christ. That too sounds like a non-starter, doesn't it? If it were not for the witness of Scripture that we would have, we might say, how could that be? How could anyone hate Jesus? Wasn't he this great teacher? Didn't he go around healing diseases and and welcoming the outcast? Didn't he draw in the sinner and the tax collector and the prostitute? Didn't he hang out with those people that nobody else wanted to be like? Didn't he teach us to give away all of our things and live in humility and give to the poor and love one another? Didn't he do those things? Who could hate Jesus? That wasn't all that Jesus taught, though, was it? That wasn't all that he did. He also taught of the need for repentance. Jesus preached a message that has nothing good to say to anyone who does not have faith in him. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. No one comes to the Father but through me. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Anyone who does not believe in the Son of God stands condemned already. Oh, that makes more sense, doesn't it? No wonder they hated him. They hated him because he came to deal with sin and to proclaim reconciliation. But in order to deal with our sin, he first has to expose our sin. And nobody liked that. In Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov, we meet a thoroughly unlikable character by the name of Dmitri. Here's how uh, Dostoevsky puts it. He longed to revenge himself on everyone for his own shortcomings. He suddenly recalled how he had once been asked, why do you hate so-and-so so much? And he'd replied then in a fit of buffoonish impudence, I'll tell you why. He never did anything to me, it's true, but I once played a most shameless, nasty trick on him and the moment I did it, I immediately hated him for it. Anybody know how that feels? We will go to great lengths to keep our own sin and our own failures from being exposed. We will go to incredible lengths to keep from being reminded of our need. We might even go so far as to disdain the person who comes and offers to help in the midst of it. See, Jesus came to proclaim reconciliation to God in the midst of a world that hates God. In John chapter 7, Jesus said, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. So don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Especially if you have staked your entire life and existence on the one who comes to give forgiveness for sin, which nobody even wants to hear about. If the world hates you, it's because they hate Jesus. And if the world hates Jesus, it's because they're at enmity with the Father. And so don't be surprised. Jesus wants you to be prepared for that reality. That's the first principle of dealing with persecution. Don't be surprised. Secondly, though, don't be silent. Don't be silent. Now, the temptation to silence in the midst of persecution only grows when you begin to connect the dots between the things that Jesus said and the way the world reacted. That's the point of verses 22 through 25. Jesus points out the kind of rejection that he faced in the world. And in verse 22, he says he came and he spoke to them. In verse 24, he says that he did the works which no one else did, and as a result, the world was guilty of the sin of rejecting him. They were guilty of a lot of other things already, actually. Uh, but when he came in the flesh and stood and spoke to them and did these works, the other sin was added that they had rejected to him. It says in the beginning of the gospel that he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And now they are guilty of this sin, and there is no excuse. Now, in the larger context of John's gospel, those two things that Jesus points out in verses 22 and 24 are really very important. What Jesus said and what Jesus did. 
They're important because together they form the testimony that Jesus had about himself, about the fact that he was the Son of God who had been sent by the Father to save his people from their sins. You can see it summed up if you turn back one page. Chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. You see it there, his twofold testimony. What he said and what he did. And John actually frames his entire gospel around a series of those things, sayings of Jesus and works of Jesus, to prove that he is the one who he said he was, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, come to take away the sins of the world. And yet, it, were, it was those things, the, the words that he spoke, and it was the works that he did that led Jesus to be rejected by the unbelieving world. So you can understand, then, the temptation to think, well, maybe I can believe in Jesus and be saved and just not speak about Jesus, and so I don't have to worry about being hated. If bearing testimony is what gets you in hot water with the world and pointing out sin the way that Jesus did and talking about reconciliation and the fact that he's come to deal with these things, if that is what the world dislikes, well, fine, I'll just, I'll be sort of a covert Christian, like a, a double agent, and I can play both sides. I'll go to church on Sunday. I'll go to my Bible study uh, later in the week. I might even read the Bible every morning before I walk out the door, but as soon as I walk out the door into the rest of society, I'm going to downplay all that religious stuff. Nobody needs to know about that. I'll just keep it as my own little secret there. And that way the world will still like what I'm doing. And, and we might even convince ourselves, you know, this is really the best way to go about it, isn't it? If you remove the initial shock of the gospel, you don't wear your Christianity on your lapels every room you go into, maybe you can get closer to non-believers. You can begin to have a, a sort of an influence in their lives. And, and, you know, somebody said something at one point that you heard, something about uh, preach the gospel and use words when necessary. Oh, that, that sounds good. And maybe that's what I'll do. And so you convince yourself that you can follow Jesus with your mouth shut. There are just a few problems with that. The first problem is that it is really disingenuous. It is really deceitful. We've heard already that the world already thinks Christians are hypocritical. What could be more two-faced than telling yourself every day that your whole life and your hope revolves around openly confessed sin, being forgiven, and walking in the truth of the gospel and then telling yourself, I'm going to change what I do and what I say and how I act in the world so that people will like me. That's pretty deceitful, isn't it? The other problem with this approach is that it really just doesn't even work. If you were to act this way in the business world, what would we call that? We'd call that a conflict of interest. That you're invested in one thing, but you're trying to do something that's quite opposite. The Bible doesn't use those terms. The Bible simply calls it trying to serve two masters at once, and we know how that turns out. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. We can't do things that way. We can't walk by faith and also try to hide our faith. We can't serve the Lord and seek the favor of the world. 
They are mutually exclusive. And so we might as well get it over with. We might as well speak the truth of what we believe in Jesus Christ and let the world think that we are crazy and deluded and write us off. That's the pattern the Lord gives to his people in these verses. 26 and 27. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. If you have an NIV in that second verse, it says something like, you must also bear witness. That's a pretty good translation. This is a command as well as a promise. Like so many of the other promises that we've been reading already in these several chapters, this is one that comes originally and initially to Jesus' first apostles. And then through their ministry, it comes also to us. After all, they were the ones who were with the Lord in the beginning, weren't they? That was an important part of what it meant to be an apostle. As they picked another one, and I believe it was Matthias, Uh, They said, well, it has to be someone who was with us from the beginning. And so they were the ones, and they were the ones who had seen the resurrected Lord. In a very real sense, we can never have the same kind of testimony that the apostles had in the world. Yet, we are called to bear testimony. Despite what the world may think, despite the vitriol that may come to us from coworkers and family members, We are called to bear witness to what we have seen by faith. God's people are his ambassadors in the world. And by his spirit, he gives us hope in believing. And then he sends us out with a command to be ready and prepared to give a defense for that hope that we have within us. He sends us out as salt and light into the world. He sends us out full of the knowledge that when Jesus did this very same thing, He was rejected and condemned. He sends us out as his ambassadors full of the knowledge that of his 12 apostles, maybe one of them died a nonviolent death in his own bed. He sends us out as ambassadors full of the knowledge that throughout the world and throughout the centuries, his people have been persecuted and martyred. The Greek word for witness, by the way, is martoreo. That's what a martyr is. It's one who gives witness, who bears testimony. And God's people have been martyred because they refuse to keep their mouths shut about what they believed about Jesus. They were bludgeoned with stones and tied to stakes and strangled with ropes and burned to death because they refused to be silent. And Jesus sends us into the world and he says, they're going to hate you, you know. but he sends us knowing that silence is not an option. This is what the church does. He hides the truth in the hearts of his people. He gives us his Holy Spirit, which will bear witness in all the world, and he says, now you go and be a part of what I'm doing. Brothers and sisters, no matter the hatred or the persecution of the world, don't be silent. One more principle for dealing with persecution from the world. When the hatred of the world hits close to home, oh, don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus. In the last few verses of this passage, 
chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, Jesus gives the church a glimpse of the kind of persecution they ought to expect from the world. He says it comes in two forms. He says they're going to put you out of the synagogues and they're going to kill you. Now we know the significance of that second one. But what you need to know about the first one is that it was also a form of death. At least for a first century Jew, being put out of the synagogue was societal death, interpersonal death. Because the the synagogue wasn't just the place that you worshipped on the Sabbath day. It was the place that, that your commerce would have happened. It was the place that if you had a business, that's where you found clients or customers. If you had children, that's where you found a spouse for your sons or for your daughters. That's where legal cases were disputed because you didn't want to deal with the Roman world and so you kept everything in-house. All aspects of the Jewish life in the first century revolved around the synagogue system. And if you were removed from the synagogue, you disappeared. Complete ostracism. Your parents disowned you. Your friends snubbed you. Your spouse probably divorced you. And everyone cheered them on as they did it. This is not a light matter. Now, it's important for us to understand that because down throughout the centuries, whether it shows up in Jewish garb or in Gentile garb, persecution almost always shows up in one of those two forms, two kinds of death. Either you deny the sort of interpersonal life that happens in the world or you deny the personal life. You you cut off the physical life of the person or you cut off the social life of the person. Maybe you take away their goods. Maybe you you tell them they can't have their job anymore, whatever it is. And it all shows up somewhere on this sort of spectrum, even in small ways, in little doses, the persecution that we face shows up like that. In 1927, the poet T.S. Eliot converted to Christianity. He was baptized into the Church of England. Now, before his conversion, Eliot had been a part of a group of intellectuals, movers and shakers in London, known as the Bloomsbury Group. Virginia Woolf was kind of the de facto leader of that group. And when she found out about Eliot's conversion, she wrote this letter uh, to one of her friends who was also part of the group. Here's what she said about Eliot. I've had a most shameful and distressing interview with dear Tom Eliot, who may be called dead to us all from this day forward. He has become a believer in God and immortality, and he goes to church. I was shocked. A corpse would seem more credible than he is. I mean, there's something obscene in a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. Can you imagine your friend writing something like that about you? We've had six young people in our congregation graduate high school this year. Some of them headed off to college. Can you imagine walking into your freshman biology class and and having your professor think those things about you when you open your mouth and tell them what you believe about how everything was created and how these things happened? Can you imagine your, your co-workers thinking that about you but never really saying it out loud? That's persecution. In some way, denying the social life. Did you hear what she said? Dear Tom Elliott, may be called dead to us all from this day forward. We want nothing to do with you. Why? Because you believe in immortality and God. And that's persecution, isn't it? 
at least in small doses. But even in those small doses, there is a danger. There is a danger. And it's the danger of walking away from the faith. The danger of denying the Lord before men. In order to make all the hatred and all the scoffing and and all of the threats just go away. Wouldn't that be the easy way out? Just to say, you know what? Peter did it. I don't know the man. (laughs) I've got nothing to do with him. Forget it. No, 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 no. That's not me. And so maybe it's only a temporary denial like it was for Peter. Maybe it's the final straw that proves that you never really believed in the first place. But there's the danger here of falling away when temptation and, and persecution comes, and the danger is real. That's why Jesus tells us in the first verse, chapter 16, verse 1, he says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Remember uh, the parable of the four soils. It's called the parable of the sower. And the sower goes out to sow the seed of the word of God. And some of it falls on the path and some on the rocky places, some among thorns. And all three of those meet a premature end and never come to full head like the stuff that falls on the good soil, right? You remember that parable? When Jesus uh, explains that parable later, he talks about the danger of persecution. He says, As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself. He endures for a little while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. You see, Jesus knows the danger. He knows our temptation, our propensity to take what seems like the easy way out. He knows that what we need to endure the trials of hatred and persecution are roots. Roots that run deep and are fed by some unseen spring. There's a beautiful illustration uh, in Pilgrim's Progress uh, when Christian makes it to Evangelist's house and he's showing him all of these things. And if you remember it there, there's a scene where uh, he goes and he sees a fire in a fireplace, and there's a figure before the fireplace pouring water on the fire and trying to put it out. And Christian asks the evangelist, well, well, who is this man? He says, this is Satan, who continually douses the the faith of believers, if, if possible, to snuff them out. But let me show you something else. And he takes him behind the wall, and there's another figure pouring oil into the fire. And he says, who is this? He says, it is Christ feeding in an unseen way those who belong to him. That's what we need in the midst of trial and persecution. We need roots that reach down to where Jesus is, where he feeds his people with his love in the midst of the persecution and the hatred of the world. And so it's comforting, isn't it, at the end when Jesus says, when these things happen, I want you to know that I told you about them. It's comforting that everything happens according to his plan. That's a sermon for another time. He's he's saying, look, everything happens, and I already know about it, and I'm telling you about it. But notice what he says. When these things happen, when their hour, when it seems like their triumph is at hand, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. The one who is willing to be hated on your account the man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering, the one upon whose shoulders your sin was laid if you believe in Jesus Christ, the one by whose stripes you are healed, he says, 
I'm telling you that they're going to hate you. But you need to know that if I'm going to lead you into temptation and persecution, I'm going to lead you through it. And so don't take your eyes off Jesus, no matter what happens. Don't be surprised when persecution shows up. Don't be silent in the face of the hatred of the world. And whatever you do, brother and sister, don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Please pray with me. Gracious Lord and God, thank you for this word that you sustain us by your spirit. If we speak of your name in the public square, it's because your spirit is working in us to give us that boldness, the same boldness that you gave to Paul and to your apostles. If we're willing to be hated for you, it's because you have shown us something lovely about yourself. This is not from us, this is from you. Oh Lord, keep us in the midst of our trials. I pray that you would gird the loins of every person here. That we would be ready and prepared to go into the world and to bear your name. We sometimes have a sort of doomsday scenario that persecution will just keep getting worse and worse in America, and sometimes it seems that way. But whatever happens, oh Lord, help us to remember that you have told us beforehand. You go before us. You have given yourself for us. And you will keep us by the power of your spirit. We pray these things in your name. Amen.